words to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen how these messages to the churches relate to the rest of the book that's to follow. These messages call the church to join in the war against everything that opposes God. That's what the rest of the book is going to describe. And these messages show the church what their part is. And this morning we come to two messages, to two churches that are facing the same challenge. Jesus calls these two churches to the same battlefield. They're given the same call to be victorious. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. And this morning we're going to read Jesus' words to the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1234, and in the large print, 1914. I'll read from verse 12 down to verse 29. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write... These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. 
Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. The Word of the risen Jesus to His church. Jesus gives his call to war to the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira. And the call is, dare to discipline. Jesus gives high praise to both of these churches. And then he points to an area where both of these churches are failing. But if we start with Pergamum, before we get to those parts of Jesus' message the bits about success and failure. Before that, Jesus introduces himself. And we've seen in previous weeks, he begins each of these messages by highlighting some part of the vision John saw back in chapter 1. The vision of the risen Christ in all of his power and glory. In each of the seven messages, Jesus mentions some aspect of that vision. And it's always something that's relevant to the particular church he's speaking to. Here he introduces himself to Pergamum in chapter 2, verse 12, by saying, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. When we looked at chapter 1, we said the significance of that is Jesus' power to judge. In chapter 1, the sword, you remember, was coming out of his mouth showing that his word has the power to condemn or to acquit. That power has been given to him by his Father. Jesus' verdict is the definitive verdict. He's the judge. We'll see later this truth has particular relevance for the church in Pergamon. They need to live with an awareness of Jesus' power to judge. But having mentioned that, Jesus then goes on to praise this church in verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. We're not going to understand the challenge that comes later to this church if we don't understand the praise that comes here at the beginning. So what does Jesus mean by Satan's throne? Well, behind the city of Pergamum, there was a large hill, roughly shaped like a throne. And on that hill, there were many different temples to many different gods. There was a temple to Caesar, who at this time in history is being worshipped as a god. There was also a temple to Zeus. 
And Zeus' temple had a throne-shaped altar. So there's a throne-shaped altar to a false god on a throne-shaped hill covered with altars to false gods. And Jesus says that whole thing is Satan's throne. The people who flock there might think they're worshipping Zeus or Caesar or whoever. But the real power at work in that hell is Satan's. All those false gods are no gods at all. But that does not mean the place is harmless. Satan is having a heyday with those people. They're under his power. And one of the ways Satan is exercising his power is by persecuting God's people in Pergamum, the Christians. The irony is this place of many gods will not put up with people who worship only one God. If you worship them all, they'll leave you alone. But when Christians try to limit their worship to Jesus alone, when they insist he is the only God, well, that gets you persecuted in Pergamon. That's one way Satan's power is at work in this city. But the church has held firm. Jesus says, you remain true to my name. In fact, they have remained true, even though at least one of them, someone called Antipas, has been put to death for his allegiance to Jesus. So this church has already faced a head-on attack from Satan. And they have stayed true to Jesus. Isn't that a victory? To live in Satan's city, under the shadow of his throne, and then to face a direct attack from Satan, and hold firm? Yes, it's great. And Jesus acknowledges that. But he wants this church to know Satan has other approaches. He has other strings in his bow. And it turns out this church that's so alert to Satan's head-on attacks is ignoring his more subtle attacks. In fact, while they've been resisting Satan's persecution, his representatives have slipped into the church. And they're working to destroy the church from within. Jesus wants Pergamum to see how Satan builds his throne in church. Look how Jesus explains it in verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Who are Balaam and Balak? Well, they were significant figures in Israel's history. We read about them in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Whenever Israel escaped from slavery in Egypt, their destination was the land of Canaan. That was the land God had promised them. But in order to get there, they had to pass through other lands, 
lands that were occupied. And their procedure was to send a message ahead to the rulers of those lands and say, look, we don't want your land. We're just passing through. We're not going to take your crops. God supplies us with manna to eat. So will you just let us pass through safely? But at one point on their journey, the Amorites refused to let Israel pass through. Instead, they gathered for war against Israel. And the Amorites lost. Now, a little bit further up the road were the Moabites. And when their leader, Balak, heard what had happened to the Amorites, he got pretty edgy. Actually, the book of Numbers tells us he was terrified. And his people were filled with dread at the approach of the Israelites. But Balak came up with a plan. He hired a prophet called Balaam. And the job he gave Balaam was to curse the Israelites. That's what Balak contracted him to do. Balaam was a prophet for hire. And Balaam may have been greedy, and he may have been stupid, but he wasn't crazy. He realized that when God is with a people, it's both pointless and dangerous to try and curse them. And so Balaam didn't curse Israel. In fact, under the influence of God's Holy Spirit, he ended up blessing the Israelites instead. And that didn't make Balak very happy. Balaam got fired. But before he left, Balaam gave Balak some advice. He said, you're never going to beat the Israelites in a head-on fight. But if you can entice them away from their God, if you can lead them to be unfaithful to him, you'll have much more success. Well, Balak took Balaam's advice, and it worked perfectly. Instead of lining up his soldiers against the Israelites, Balak sent Moabite women in to join the Israelites and make friends. It wasn't long before Israelite men were accepting invitations to dinner with those Moabite ladies. But those dinners also involved sex and worship of the Moabite gods. It all went together as a package. Soon the men were inviting the ladies back to the Israelite camp to do the same thing there. And the outcome of it all was that God's judgment fell on Israel for her disobedience. 24,000 Israelites died. And so what Balak could never have achieved with a head-on attack, he achieved in spades with a more subtle attack. And here in our passage, about 1,500 years later, Jesus says to Pergamum, you're being attacked the same way. You're defending the front door against Satan's onslaught, but he sent his agents in the back door. You've shown you're ready to put your lives on the line for me, but you're in the process of being seduced away from me. 
and you don't even recognize it. Now it's highly unlikely anyone arrived at the church in Pergamum and announced themselves to be a follower of Balaam. No one sat in their membership interview and said, I notice you're a Baptist church. Well, personally, I hold to the teaching of Balaam. No, these people would pass for straight up and down Christians. It's Jesus who's calling them what they really are. And that's why the church is in such danger. It's all happening so subtly. These infiltrators are enticing the church into sin. What did that involve exactly? Well, in a city like Pergamum with so much idol worship going on, part of the seduction would almost certainly have included literal idol worship and literal sexual immorality. Idol worship often involved sacrificial meals and at the temples, sex with temple prostitutes. Some Christians are probably being led into that. But the application is almost certainly wider than that. Last week we heard about trade guilds. Places where workers join together for uh, contacts and job opportunities. But also places where worship was given to Caesar and to other gods. And we saw the pressure there was to join those guilds. Because it was very hard to find work if you didn't join up. And no doubt these Balaam types in the church are arguing, it's okay to pay your dues to a false god now and again. Just in the name of getting along. And in the process people are beginning to compromise their allegiance to the true God. It seems this group called the Nicolaitans were people who actually taught this kind of compromise. They were putting in a kind of active persuasion to the church. But much of the time, this enticement to sin will be coming from people in the church who are just living this way. Setting an example of compromise and sin. And because the church as a whole isn't doing anything about it, other Christians begin to figure, well, it must be okay. And they start doing the same things. So the point here is not that all these followers of Balaam are consciously trying to destroy the church. The point is, as they live lives of compromise and sin, Satan is using them to destroy the church by leading others into sin. And so Pergamum is a church bravely facing attacks from the outside, but overlooking the attack from within. And if we think for a moment about how this applies to us, Obviously, in our culture, the focus is not on idol temples. But imagine someone in the church who professes to follow Jesus. 
And yet they're obviously consumed with greed. They're living for more and more money and stuff. And they're using the church as a place to flaunt their aspirations and their wealth. Someone else in the church starts sleeping around or moves in with their boyfriend or girlfriend. And the church as a whole just ignores it. Or someone who professes to be a Christian starts to date an unbeliever. And the issue is never addressed. Someone else starts telling anyone who listened to them that the culture around us has moved on. The standards in the Bible, well, aren't they getting a bit out of date? Hadn't we better move on from the Bible's teaching? Shouldn't we update our standards in line with the culture? Imagine a church where this kind of stuff is being spread around by church members. And these kinds of lives are being lived by church members with no challenge and no rebuke from the rest of the church. No one's going about denying the resurrection. They're not denying the divinity of Jesus Christ. But the church is being attacked from within. Satan is quietly building his throne in the church. And no one's doing a thing about it. That's where Pergamum is. And it's a danger for every church. Jesus has diagnosed the problem in Pergamum. So what does he prescribe for that problem? What's the way forward for this church? Very simply, Jesus says, you deal with it, or I'll come and deal with it myself. Verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the word of my mouth. Notice he says, repent or I will fight against them. So he's talking about two groups. And the ones who are to repent are the ones who are letting this stuff go on. Jesus is not talking here to the ones who are doing the sin. He's talking to the ones who are letting them get away with it. He says, repent of your negligence. Repent of your weak attitude to this sin in the church. And in this case, repentance will involve disciplining those who are leading the church astray. They're to be put out of the church. Who's supposed to do that? In other words, is Jesus talking to the leaders of the church or to the congregation? He's talking to both. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he addresses a situation in the church in Corinth where this kind of thing's going on. Someone has to be disciplined. And this is what he writes, writing here to the whole church. When you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, 
hand this man over to Satan. So the responsibility for discipline rests with the whole church body. The leaders are certainly to give the lead, but the whole body has to carry it out. And notice how Paul puts it. The person who's cheerfully and unrepentantly living a sinful lifestyle while claiming to follow Christ, that person is Satan's agent in the church. They might not see themselves that way, but that's what they are. So Paul says, hand them back to Satan. Of course, ultimately, Paul wants that individual to repent themselves and be reconciled to God. That's the goal of the discipline. But in the meantime, the church needs to recognize the seriousness of what's going on. And here Jesus says to Pergamum, Satan may have his throne outside of my church, but I will not allow him to have it in my church. So either you as a church deal with this, or I will. I will bring my sword of condemnation among you. And the same message comes to us. Now just so we're clear, we are certainly called to love one another and bear one another's burdens and forgive and confess our sins to one another. We are to welcome all kinds of sinners. We're to welcome them with the good news that Jesus came to save all kinds of sinners. Yes. But we are not to tolerate those who claim to belong to Jesus and yet refuse to battle sin. Who cheerfully go on in sin and by their example lead others into sin. Church discipline is a difficult subject. That's as it should be. It's a thing to be thought about and if and when the time comes, it's a thing to be done in fear and trembling. And it's to be done in stages. The New Testament elsewhere tells us that. The person is to be given ample and repeated opportunity to repent and be restored. It's hard to do. But every church has to be willing to do it. That's what Jesus is insisting on. Because the church that refuses to discipline is letting Satan build his throne in Jesus' church. And that makes Jesus angry. In his letter to Smyrna, Jesus said, I hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. And when Jesus hates something, the church needs to hate it too. And show by their actions that they hate it. One of the main reasons churches shy away from discipline 
is because rebuking and if need be removing people can seem cruel. We worry, don't we? It might cause hurt. It might do harm. But Jesus answers those worries in his next message to Thyatira. So before we look at his final encouragement to Pergamum, I want us to look at the opening part of his message to Thyatira. Because in this message, Jesus explains when tolerance is cruelty. Look at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. The church in Thyatira is commended for its work, love, and faith. But it is failing to do the work of tough love. Jesus introduces himself here as the one who stands in absolute blazing purity. Sin cannot live in that kind of presence. He's perfectly holy. And that perfect holiness is symbolized by fire and glowing bronze. And Jesus finds plenty to command in this church, including their love. In fact, he says, this church is moving forward. They're now doing more than they did at first. So what's the problem? It's exactly the same as the problem in Pergamon. Notice how he puts it. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. So was there a woman called Jezebel in this church? Probably not. It's more likely Jezebel is mentioned in the same way Balaam and Balak were mentioned. Someone in the Thyatiran church, or maybe a group of people, are following in the footsteps of Jezebel in the Old Testament. Who was she? Well, 1 Kings tells us Ahab, king of Israel, married the king of Sidon's daughter. Her name was Jezebel. Ahab brought her back into Israel and into his palace. And she brought with her the worship of her god, Baal. Before long, Israel had its own temple to Baal, plus many altars to Baal scattered around the country, and 450 prophets of Baal. And most of Israel was merrily worshipping Baal, and doing all the things that were connected with Baal worship. So Jezebel did the same thing Balaam and Balak had done centuries before her. She did not lead a frontal attack on Israel. She defeated them from the inside. 
You'll notice verse 20 uses the same words that were used in the letter to Pergamon. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And again, this is about more than just food and sex. Down in verse 24, Jesus says this woman is offering to let people in on Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now, she probably didn't call them Satan's secrets. But she's offering deeper truths to God's people. Things that you won't find in the Bible. Mysterious knowledge that only she's able to give. But Jesus says, whatever she calls it, it's from Satan. And here's the first reason why it is cruel to tolerate sin in the church. It's cruel because it allows God's people to be misled into sin. The Thyatirans are big on loving people. They would probably claim their tolerance of Jezebel is love. But while they're loving her, by standing back as she does her thing and spreads her ideas, that tolerance is allowing others to be led into sin. And that's cruel. It's not loving. Then Jesus gives a second reason it's cruel to tolerate sin in the church. It lets Jezebel herself go unchecked towards God's judgment. Look what he says in verse 21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her in a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Her children here means her followers. God's judgment will fall on all of them. Now the Bible leaves us in no doubt. God is a tolerant God. But his tolerance has a purpose. And it has a limit. God tolerates sin for a time. To give people opportunity to repent and be saved. His tolerance should never be taken as approval of their sin. It's a gracious opportunity to turn from sin. And God's tolerance is not indefinite. One day it will end. And so the tolerance of the Thyatiran church is not like God's tolerance. They have been tolerating Jezebel's sin because they're too weak need to rebuke her. But how has that helped her? God has tolerated her sin for a time so the church can call her to repentance. But the church has not taken the opportunity. They haven't loved her enough to rebuke her. And now God's tolerance has run out. He says he's coming with judgment. 
So the tolerance of the Thyatiran church has actually been cruelty. So long as God withheld his wrath, maybe church discipline would have brought her to her senses. But the church did nothing. And now God's wrath is coming. And notice what's about to happen in Thyatira is going to teach all of the churches. Look at the middle of verse 23. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. The word tolerance is a word we're all very familiar with. It's everywhere today. And we can feel great pressure to practice a certain kind of tolerance. A tolerance where anything goes. No one is ever confronted. No one is ever challenged. No one is ever put out of the church. But as you and I feel that pressure... Let's hear what Jesus says to his church. He says that kind of tolerance is not love. It's cruelty. It allows more of my people to be led into sin and it lets the perpetrators of sin go unchecked towards my wrath. What's loving about that? If we love people, We must be willing to tackle sin in the church. You and I have no say over sin outside the church. But we can love people enough in the church to say, you repent of this and commit to turn from it or you go for your own good, to bring you to your senses and for the good of the rest of the church. And ultimately for the honor of God's name. Each of the seven messages to the churches ends with a promise. It's a promise given to those who are victorious, or those who conquer. Now we know the battlefield these two churches are called to. They must dare to discipline. That's the front line they're to fight on. They must refuse to let sin go unchecked in the church. But what promises does Jesus have for them? What encouragements does he give? Well, look back to verse 17. He says to Pergamum, to the one who is victorious... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus says to the church, fight your battle. And yes, you might suffer in this life because of it. Satan does not like people who kick over his throne. But I will sustain you. Just like I gave Israel bread from heaven, manna to keep them going on their journey. So I will give you all that you need. And he also promises a white stone. Probably that means a token of membership. 
And Jesus says, Satan won't let you in his club if you remain true to me. You might find yourself excluded from the high places and the in-groups of your society. The places where he has his throne. But I will welcome you into my new heaven and earth. You have membership in the place where my throne stands. What does Jesus promise Thyatira? Look at verse 26. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. This church may well have been afraid to stand up to Jezebel because they thought they had no real authority to stand up to her. That it wasn't their place. But Jesus quotes from Psalm 2, which we read earlier, and he says, one day you are going to rule with me. Certainly you have my authority today to deal with sin. And one day, he says, I'll give you the morning star. That's another name for Jesus himself. Comes back later in the book. The church is Jesus' bride. And the reason we refuse to let his bride wallow in sin is ultimately because we long to present Jesus with a pure and spotless bride. Let's pray. Father, you call us repeatedly to love. And as we listen to your son this morning, we realize sometimes love requires confrontation. You call us to resist the devil. And your son has told us that sometimes the devil has to be resisted inside the church when he's trying to gain a foothold in the church. So we hear this call to war from Jesus and we ask you to help us. Help us, first of all, as individuals. Teach each of us self-discipline. Help us to take sin seriously in our own lives. So Satan gets no foothold there. Then as leaders and as a church body, give us the courage to bring discipline when discipline is needed. We pray that it never is needed. But if it is, give us the courage And give us the right spirit so that we never enter into discipline with any excitement or any relish, but with tears, with genuine love.
We pray that as a church, we will never be so cruel that we turn a blind eye to sin and act like it doesn't matter. And as we pray these things, we take hold of your promises. The promise of manna, heavenly supplies for all that we need. The promise of a white stone showing our acceptance before your throne. Not because of our goodness, but because of Jesus' sacrifice. His death in our place. And we thank you for this promise from Jesus that he will give us himself, the morning star. We want to fight this battle because we want to honor him and be with him. So help us. Amen. Let's sing, O Church, Arise.